This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two term incumbents, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And this morning, our party guest is Ian Verinder, who's the business editor here at the ABC, because, yep, you guessed it, it's the 10th consecutive interest rate rise handed down by the Reserve Bank of Australia. Enough already. Well, maybe, maybe not. The Reserve Bank governor gave us a bit of a hint that the bank might not move on rates again next month. That would be incredible, a month without a rate rise. They might pause it. So when exactly can we expect the bank to press pause and for how long? We're going to be asking Ian that a little later. First, PK, the parliament is back. It's busy, busy, busy. One of the government's first priorities this week is the Referendum Machineries Act, which I thought sounded a little dull, a little mechanical, important, I'm sure. PK, what is it? Yeah, I got a great text about it this morning on RM Breakfast, friend. Um, someone making jokes about trucks and mechanics and how technical it does sound. But it is serious and it does matter. Um, it's exactly as it says about the mechanics of the way referendums work. It's proposing essentially to update the way that they are held. So not just a referendum will vote on later this year, not not just one referendum, but full stop referendums in the future. And the government has already given some ground, in fact, on that bill. We've previously said in the party room, you've heard it around, that they agreed to having the production of a yes and a no pamphlet, like that was a concession. But it wasn't enough, though, for Peter Dutton and the coalition who voted against the bill in the lower house. It now goes to the Senate. Although, you know, it obviously looks more likely to go through the Senate, but I thought it was interesting that they did vote it down in the House. PK, is this just, though, about the mechanics of a referendum, any referendum, or is this a proxy, do you think, for the bigger debate on The Voice? If Peter Dutton wanted to signal he was on board with The Voice, would he have jumped on board with this basic bill? Or can't we read anything into this yet? What do you reckon? Well, the opposition is arguing that it is genuinely their concern around the way referendums are held, that they believe that there should be a consistent yes and no funding for any referendum question we might have. That's a few of them have pointed to. If we have a Republic referendum, clearly Labor would like that to be a second term project that perhaps that you need to have this all in place. Now, of course, you can change this bill again. The truth is anyone can change the bills Mm. um, about how you set up referendums and update it again if you wanted to. Uh, Look, I do think, uh, column A, column B, I haven't used that one for a while, Um, I do think they are concerned about yes and no campaigns being equally funded or the mechanics of setting up a committee to run campaigns is equal. I do think they actually do believe that beyond just this referendum. But I do actually think that it is a precursor to 
what is firming up, in my view, from listening closely to what they're saying to saying essentially no to The Voice. Now, it's not officially so, and they have not said that on the record, but if you listen to everything they've said, they are not. They don't sound like they're great fans of mm. this voice. So I, th- I do think that, that they are moving very much in that direction. Just a bit of a segue here because, I mean, we are going to be talking about The Voice here on The Party Room all year, right up until the referendum's held, which we think will be October around about. So most weeks we may, you know, we might have a quick update rather than a long, detailed run-through on everything being said. We will cover all the big moves, of course. But because just to segue, when we're talking, when the opposition is saying, no, there must be, you know, uh, funding for the yes and no campaigns uh, allowed or built into this bill, do we know what sort of money they're talking about? Are they talking about several hundred thousand to, I don't know, set up a... A secretariat, or are they yes. talking about millions? Uh, well, that no one's put a dollar figure on specific, but I think the first option you provided is certainly what Simon Birmingham, who's a leading moderate, suggested. He didn't put a dollar figure on either, but he talked about setting up official committees and you know secretariats and the officiating, if you like, the campaigns. Not huge amounts of money on mm. advertising. So there is a difference. As you rightly pointed out, we're not going to go through every part of the minutiae, so that's going to get sorted out. Okay, so that's the mechanics. And then we're recording this on a Thursday. There is another and separate meeting, which is the Referendum Working Group, which has been Indigenous Australians, very prominent people on that. You know, we're talking Megan Davis, Pat Anderson, uh, names that I think are becoming household names increasingly, uh, Noel Pearson, others, there's a lot of people on that, who are meeting to kind of uh, get much closer to the formulation of what they're going to recommend. I'm very, very certain that they do think it should be a referendum which is a voice that gives advice not just to the parliament but also the government, the executive. They think that's pretty key and I think that's going to be the recommendation to the government. It will be very hard for the government to then sort of say, nah, yeah. nah. Well, that's right and the opposition wants them to say nah to that. The opposition is saying that could set up all sorts of legal skirmishes in the future, it could end up in court and tying up the courts but it seems to me a no-brainer really. I mean, you want an advisory body that's going to be able to talk directly to the ministers who are the ones developing policies and funding policies. So uh, I don't see why you'd want to hamstring this thing from the very beginning and cut out sort of a significant amount of its of its capacity, really. Anyway, that's one of these ongoing things that we will keep you abreast of here on The Party Room. That's right. Look, let's return to the Parliament now where all of the shenanigans have been going on this week. Uh, discussions between the Greens and the government continuing behind closed doors and, you know, I tried to open some doors there, on the emissions safeguard mechanism. Now, that's the policy put in place by the Abbott government that's designed to get the 215 top emitters to cut their emissions by 5% every year. But this week, things got a little more... Heated, disgruntled between the parties. The Greens have been insisting uh, on their position. They're saying it's not an ultimatum, but they are really whew, gassing up this no new <laughs> gas and coal demand. The government is not entertaining that idea, though. Chris Bowen told us on RM Breakfast that it would be irresponsible to put a blanket ban on new gas because some of those emitters uh, need gas to operate because the renewable technologies aren't there yet. Fran, I feel like we heard from the government this week a strengthening of the language of why they need not gas and coal, but new gas, mainly gas. 
but potentially cost. Yeah, I think we did. And just to put this in perspective, you know, we said that was a this whole emissions safeguard mechanism was an Abbott policy. It was. It's been running under the coalition. But uh, the Albanese government has made this pledge to cut emissions by 43% by 2030. This is one of the key mechanisms for them doing this, to be able to force those big emitters to cut their emissions by 5% every year. That's what was missing under the coalition. That's what Labor's trying to put in place. Um, but I think, too, there does seem to be sort of both sides in their trenches around this. The, the Greens leader, Adam Bant, was on 7.30 early in the week. He says the Greens have already given some concession and he was really pushing this line of no new coal and gas and he was sticking to that, although he was also saying it wasn't exactly a red line. For us, we're saying very, very clearly we will put aside our concerns with the government's legislation, pass it, give the scheme a chance to get running, but we've got to deal with this question of coal and gas. You can't put the fire out while you're pouring petrol on it. it sounds like you've already reached your red line. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Adam Bant. Well, I don't know that that's a, f- a fair summation of it, but we're in good faith negotiations and we'll continue then. <laughs> so make is that it red? what you will. Is it red? Is it maybe just a little pale pink? I'm not sure. It's amber. But PK, you know, we've spoken before here on the party room about the Greens being saddled with the legacy of the decision the Greens Party made in 2009 to vote down Kevin Rudd's emissions trading scheme at the time. It was called the CPRS. Labor still believes in its bones that this haunts the Greens and they won't make that mistake again of making the perfect the enemy of the good that they won't vote down the emission safeguard scheme, you know, unless Labor stipulates no new coal and gas. What do you think? Yeah, that's right. Labor certainly thinks that it haunts them. And I think that there is a dynamic there for sure. And I think the evidence shows that the Greens are aware that it's a dynamic. You've seen a very pragmatic Adam Bant talk about good faith negotiations. They did vote, remember, for the 43% reduction in emissions. There has already been a climate bill and they, they played ball on that one. So they, they have actually demonstrated a different operating model. At the same time, though, this no new coal and gas line taken hold with voters. Yeah, I think it really but has. It really has because of the repeat, repeat, repeat. What the Greens tell me is that this idea that they're haunted by this doesn't take into account the fact that they have a whole lot of voters under 35 Young people do vote Greens disproportionately and that those young people, they don't even remember this CPRS debate. Those of us of middle age, hi everyone, um, (laughs) we remember it a little more and that it was seen as the Greens holding up progress and that's the way it was painted that things have changed and they're getting traction. There was another poll out today published in The Guardian. It was only of the ACT, but it showed that in the ACT, where David Pocock is a crucial vote, majority of voters want new coal and gas banned. So there is clearly some, in some parts of the country, not all, but some sympathy for this. And maybe some signs the government is seeing that too. I mean, the ACT is perhaps a a separate case to much of the other country because I think it's 100% renewable energy in the ACT. So they're in a slightly different situation, perhaps slightly different mindset. But some signs the government's given some ground to the Greens on the whole no new coal and gas demand this week, PK, in the debate on Labor's $15 billion National Reconstruction Fund, which Peter Dutton has opposed, of course, um, so that brought the Greens into the frame. The government secured the Greens' support with a last-minute decision to agree that this fund, this NRF, will not fund any new coal or gas projects. Now, 
the government used to say, well, it's not for that anyway. It's for manufacturing. It's for all sorts of other kind of production, not for gas and coal production. But they've agreed to stipulate that. So something tells me this is not a template for the emissions reduction scheme, that those negotiations are still going to be sort of hard fought. Or is it? Look, I think they are going to be hard for, and it's different. The safeguards mechanism that we were talking about before, that is when you ban coal and gas and that, that's very explicit and it's all about actually that that issue. Uh, Whereas the other fund, the National Reconstruction Fund, was not primarily dealing with this issue. So I think it's an easier concession to hand over, isn't it, right? Having said that, it does show that the government has an appetite to get business done. It wants to get its bills through. It knows it needs to negotiate. So what you what you can read into it is a pretty pragmatic government too. I talked about the pragmatism of um, Adam Ban as Greens leader, which I think he's demonstrated. I also think the government has shown that they might like to muscle up sometimes, but they also want to go tick, tick, tick to their agenda. And this is a key part of their agenda. Yeah. Hey, PK, Wednesday, March the 8th, one of my favourite days of the year, International Women's Day, Parliament House was awash with purple, green and white, the suffragette colours and a swag of new reports about women's economic participation. The Labor government was boasting about its newish look government too. The Finance Minister Katie Gallagher posted a video absolutely chock-a-block full of Labor's female MPs and senators who make up more than half the Labor caucus. So that's quite a moment. Was there some strategy at play in this, do you think, by seemingly boasting about how many women they had in the parliament? Yes. <laughs> a lot of politics. I mean, it wasn't in just it. celebrating the women is what I'm... Is my hunch. What's your hunch? Look, I'm sure they enjoyed celebrating the women too. They also enjoyed celebrating the um, look at us, look at us. We've got we we don't have a gender issue. Uh, Look over there. Um, Look, it was of course a political strike uh, against opposition leader Peter Dutton. Subtly, not so subtly. Uh, Labor's got a lot of women. Um, the coalition, uh, a, a lot fewer women. Labor set quotas. Labor, Labor has been able to deliver. But remember the bitter debate in the Labor Party in what was it, 1994, to set those quotas? Yes, around. sadly I was there. Well, happily I was there, and I remember it well too. I remember Paul Keating trumpeting it. But it was a hard slog at the Labor Party conference on the on the floor of that conference. But they did it, and so many years later. Labor now has 54 women in their ranks compared to the coalition's 25, so more than double. So, you know, quotas do work. I feel I just want to make this one point that I do feel is very, very compelling. Remember that time that part of the debate was always about merit and merit always gets raised, right? Like, oh, you're going to get these women with no merit in the parliament. You don't hear a lot of people saying that Katie Gallagher or Penny Wong. No. No. Don't have merit. You don't. Anymore, and in do fact, you? when you look at that video of the of the women, there's so much depth there. Some of the you know leading political names in our country are female, and most of them are on the Labor side. I mean, I think I think I'm right in saying the the Liberal Party is reduced. It might be nine women in the House of Reps. I think you know that's a very small number, historic low. I think so. They've been going backwards. They went backwards at the last election. The Teals, of course, knocked off some some of their female members and replace them with and male women <laughs> and male members and replace them with women exactly and so that in terms of representation within the parliament overall the number is an all-time high but within the coalition coalition ranks they're um and a woeful state really
Mm, absolutely. Look, we've talked about so many of the big stories in Parliament this week, and they're all big, but we've kind of buried the lead here, which <laughs> is, of course, what we first mentioned, Fran mentioned, 10 rate rises in a row. If you've got a mortgage or you're paying rent and the rent's going up, you know all about it. We don't have to tell you. But there's a lot of politics and a lot of economic rationale for it. So shall we bring our guest in, Fran? Let's do it. (laughs) Ian Verinder is the ABC's business editor and has a big economics brain that we want to pick. Welcome to the party room. Oh, thanks. What an intro. I'm not sure I'm a big economics brain. Maybe, oh, maybe not. Come <laughs> on in. This is your time to shine. Ian, on Tuesday, the RBA handed down yet another rate rise, the 10th in a row. We knew it was coming because the Governor, Phil Lowe, had warned us to expect rate rises in his statement last month. But there was a notable shift in his language this week. We are closer to the point where it will be appropriate to pause interest rate increases to allow more time to assess the state of the economy. At what point it will be appropriate to pause will be determined by the data and by our assessment of the outlook. The Reserve Bank Governor speaking at the AFR Summit. Ian, let's pause to talk about pausing. Mm -hmm. Is the Governor hinting there that the pain might be coming to end or is this a false dawn? Are we just going to take a little breather in the rate rises? I think we're going to take a breather, but I tell you what, it's hard to know because just a month ago he really ramped up the rhetoric on interest rates. Uh, You know, back in December they toned it right back, toned it down, and then everyone thought, oh, we're close to the peak. This is great. And then in February, first meeting for this year, they said, listen, we're going to have uh, rate hikes over the next few months. And those two plurals indicated to everybody else that they were thinking we're going to really push rates higher than anybody expected. Now, that was in February. Four weeks later, it's, oh, we're close to the peak again. So, so what's, what's going on? What are they thinking about? Well, the messaging is very mixed, but the problem, I guess, is or was that in January we had inflation numbers that came in much stronger than anticipated. And that was what you know, caused them to ramp the rhetoric back up. But since then, we've had every bit of data that's come in has been extremely weak. GDP numbers were not great at all, really. The uh, unemployment numbers were weaker than expected. The wage price numbers were weaker than expected. So suddenly, you know, you can start to see the impact of the rate hikes we've had so far starting to hit the economy. And the mental health toll of rate rises is also mounting as many households struggle with these higher mortgage repayments and, and by extension, many renters too. That's, that's the other part of this story. Sure um, they struggle with these increased rents. I, I know all around me people are saying, oh, they've told me they're you know, increasing my rent again. I don't know if I can afford it. But this is very common. The RBA governor says that the board are getting a lot of mail from people telling their stories and that they're tough, that he's committed to meeting with suicide prevention groups off the back of this. But that meeting isn't actually till May, um, Ian. (laughs) But it is a first. Is it just symbolic though? Is this just about the the RBO knowing that the world's changed and that they need to sound like they're in touch? Uh, There is certainly an element of that, I think for sure, that um, they want to be seen to be not the cold-hearted evil people out there just making everybody's life a misery, you know, because the thing is inflation makes your life a misery, even if you don't do anything about it, you know, because, Mm. you know, you can't afford to keep those pay rises going. And here you've got a central bank on the top of that, making life even harder by jacking up interest rates. I mean, look, the thing about interest rates is that, you know, everyone says they're a blunt tool, no doubt about 
it. They are a blunt tool, but they're not very fair either because they hit a really small section of society. There's a lot of people who feel all the pain. There's a That's large... people with mortgages largely or people renting from people with mortgages who are whacking up the Both, rent. but but they are people generally... With the ones with mortgages are the ones younger people who've only just gotten into the market with large borrowings and also are now being hit by these incredible uh, rate increases that are about to just double their repayments. Then and above them, you've got people who aren't that much affected, older people who've paid off a lot of their, their mortgages. And then above that, you've got a fairly large percentage of people who don't really have any debt and have got investments, and they do quite well out of this in a lot of ways. So it's not a very equitable way of managing the economy. Are they kind of like damned if they do and damned if they don't, though? Because as you say, if they if they don't try and clamp down on inflation, inflation, if it's away from us, you know, hurts everybody because your wages never go up to keep up with inflation. It does. The thing is, inflation tends to fix itself as long as wages don't get out of control, as you just mentioned. Well, that's not what Philip Lowe was saying last time, though. No. He was called before the parliament. He gave this impassioned speech about how he you know, just didn't want to see the, inf- the inflation genie out of the bottle painted a real doomsday scenario. It can. Except that in Australia, you just don't get automatic wages rises anymore. People don't walk off the jobs anymore because it's illegal to do so. You know, and we've, we've manufactured a situation in this country where, uh, and, you know, out of good, for good reason, where industrial disputes just don't really take place anymore. A lot of people, at least, are governed by enterprise bargaining agreements where your wages are set for three years. So the whole wages price spiral argument is really doesn't really exist here. No, I think that's dead right. But the other part of all of this is, okay, so the RBA changes its tone a bit, you know, it gets a little, little more dovish rather than hawkish, and then at the same time, and I really want to find out what you think of this, the Fed Reserve is saying something different. What What's the impact of that if they start hiking rates? Is that going to bleed into our economy? It will, and primarily through the exchange rate, because what will happen is if the US Federal Reserve starts to hike at a faster rate, and that's what they're talking about now, that'll boost the US dollar, which will weaken the Aussie dollar, and that tends to uh, spur inflation because we have a weaker dollar, because it's a weaker dollar, it costs you more to import things from other countries and therefore prices flow through. But I think you've actually hit upon a really important point, PK, and you know, if you look at the, um, I guess, the guidebook to the central banker's guidebook to running an economy, it basically has two paragraphs in it. The first paragraph is, if inflation goes up, jack up interest rates. If inflation goes down, cut them, right? But it's this cookie cutter approach that they all take globally, that that is the way you, you run things. But there are different impacts across the globe with, with interest rates. Okay. So if that's the blunt instrument, as you've just described it, and maybe the third paragraph is, is look what's happening in America and then yeah. see how that's going to impact well, on us. But, but it's more important than that because the impact of interest rates in Australia is far different to what happens in America. Yeah. We're, we're quite unique in this country, right? We are the most vulnerable to interest rate rises in this country. Because then, if the rate rise goes up, our mortgages go up. That doesn't happen in the US, does no, it? All of that's our mortgages. Right. That's yeah. right. Um, because, you know, firstly, we're, we're one of the most indebted nations in the, in the world. Uh, our, you know, ratio of uh, household debt to uh, income is one of the highest in the world. That's, that's a really important factor. 
Uh, the second thing is that most of our home loans are short term. Uh, they're either variable or if they're fixed, it's only for one or two years at the most. You, know, you, you can get them out to three or up to five, but most people go for two to three. So that's very short term. If you look in the States, you know, you get a, you get a home loan, you get it for 25, 30 years, right? That's the, that's the, if your rate is fixed. fixed. So when the US Federal Reserve pushes through interest rate rises, it doesn't flow through to the household sector like it does here. When we do it here, we just get an immediate impact on the household sector. Household spending starts to really rain in. In the States, it hits corporate debt more. That's the Reserve Bank trying to do what they can to curb inflation. What about the government's role? Because the opposition is claiming that while the government isn't doing enough to help households that are crying out for support, but also the government could be at risk of overstimulating the economy with legislation like the National Reconstruction Fund or the Housing Fund. Now, I don't know how you square the circle, but if the government really is going to support the RBA in the fight against inflation, is it going to have to start taking more money out of the economy? code for budget cuts. Yep. So if you want to take money out of the economy, there's only two instruments that governments have. You can either spend less or you can tax more. You know, and politically... Politically? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's not great for, uh, you know, for winning elections. I mean, look, if you wanted a fairer approach to managing the economy, governments would have a much bigger role. And you could, for instance, put a, a, a levy on, uh, on high income earners and tax them at a greater rate for a short period of time. So we, we're going to do this for 18 months, two years, whatever it is, because we need to take money out of the economy. We need to really wind back spending, household spending. And, you know, here we've got this cohort of very young people, first home buyers, who are bearing the brunt of the pain here. And it's sorry, but it's up to everybody has to feel the pain. So we're going to do this as well. I mean, it's probably... Tony Abbott tried that. Yeah, that, I know. That budget didn't go so well for him. No. And I mean, this is the problem with, with elected representatives trying to, you know, manage an economy and doing things that are unpopular. You're just not going to get re-elected. No. You mentioned jacking up taxes and that, that issue of economic management. The government's proposed changes to super tax concessions are set to raise nearly $2 billion. So quite small scale, modest, as the government likes to describe it, reform. Is it part of a bigger plan, though? Do, we, do you see this as the beginning of something, Ian? Uh, yeah, I probably do, because... <laughs> uh, well, and, and quite rightly so. I mean, there's a whole range of areas where you could look at, uh, you know, things that tax concessions in particular that uh, should not be there. And why, you know, incredibly wealthy people were given essentially tax-free income once they'd retired. Why should it be that somebody with uh, millions of dollars socked away in super funds pays no tax on the income? And this is one of the great furfies of this whole debate, that the government is trying to tax your superannuation. They're not. They're trying to tax the income that you receive, not your super, right? They're not going to take your super away from you. It's the income. And even with the tax changes, you're getting a much lower rate of tax than somebody who's out there working. So again, you've got younger people out there earning, say, I don't know, fifty to $100,000 a year and, and can't afford to own, buy a house. And if they do, they're being slugged with all these interest rate yeah. hikes and they, they, you know, they're paying a much higher tax rate. Is the system cooked, disproportionately affecting just some people? It sounds like the whole system is cooked. It, it does, doesn't it? 
Well, you'd have to say yes. Well, oh. the government seems to be alert to it. I mean, that's why they've done what they call this modest change and the, the polls, the limited polls we have on it suggest that people uh, accept it, more than accept it, think it's the right thing to do, the, drawing that $3 million line. But, you know... Yes, and there's more. There's, there's stage three tax cuts coming at you. Government's still holding the line on that. Anthony Albanese clearly nervous about the whole trust matter. Peter Dutton doing all he can to push that trust button. Here he is talking about, you know, the super change. When you hear the government talking about a more sustainable system, that's code for, you know, we can't manage the economy. The government's beating the drums of class war again. And it doesn't matter whether you've got 30,000 in your super or 300,000 or indeed 3 million. As I say, the point is that the super that you have contributed to is yours. The super is yours. Didn't take long for the class warfare mm. line to be brought out here. But nobody's ever suggested that your super isn't yours. They're right? not going to take your three no, million, are they? No, they're not going to take your three million. They're not going to take... Well, at the moment, it's much more than three million. You can have as much as you like in there. Yeah, but that resonates with the other thing, doesn't it, which is that Labor wants to change the definition of super, so super is for your retirement, locked away, and the opposition really going hard on your super is yours. If you need a house, mm. you should be able to access your super. It's, it's really pushing that, Well, then that, it's not super, it? is it? You know, I mean, if it's for your house, it's a savings pool. And, and, that, and the problem is it was set up... By by Keating back in the late 80s uh, as a system for retirement to provide money for you once you've finished work. It was a superannuation system to take pressure off the federal budget because we weren't, well, back then the argument was we were not going to be able to afford for taxpayers to pay a pension mm. to retirees. You're going to have to look after yourself in retirement. But now it's morphed into this savings pool. It's costing the budget $50 billion plus right. in tax concessions. It's going to cost more than the than the pension. Yeah, and I suppose that when it was formed, it sort of predates the, the ridiculous housing crisis that this country is now facing where where housing has become so hard to to actually obtain for many young people. So these debates probably weren't foreseen in that context, right? No, that's right. I mean, you know, nobody foresaw that... Uh I guess the Australian economy would turn into, well, on the one hand, we dig up a lot of dirt and send it overseas. And on the other hand, uh, we basically build houses and we've got a, uh, a banking system that's essentially geared towards lending money to, to, for housing. And, you know, if you, all you've got to do is look at the stock exchange, the Australian stock exchange. The biggest companies on the exchange are miners and banks. And when it comes to banks, their overwhelming business is lending money for housing. And that's what they've done for the past 30 or 40 years. And and that's why Australians have so much household debt. It's all tied up with mortgages. Ian, just finally, PK and I touched earlier on the debate over the emissions safeguard mechanism and the Greens' demand for no new coal and gas. Polls suggest it might be starting to cut through. 63% of Canberrans supported it in a poll by the Australia Institute this week. But the government doesn't seem phased, even though it needs this bill to be passed, if it's going to have any hope of meeting its uh, emissions reduction target of 43%. What are the economics of, I know this is a big question, but mm. what are the economics of new coal and new gas? Because there are hundreds of development applications in the pipeline. If they all came to be, would blow our emissions target out of the ballpark. Mm. What's the economics of it? Is that going to help keep a lid on it? The economics of it were, were radically changed by the invasion of Ukraine, uh, which sent energy prices soaring and, I guess, highlighted the fact that globally, it uh, didn't matter whether you were running China or whether you were running Australia or wherever, uh, energy was uh, much more difficult to source and the reliability and security of having 
energy um, was paramount over climate change. And as a result of that, we saw the price of coal, the price of gas, the price of oil soaring since. And that, and that of course, shifts the fundamental economics of Suddenly the whole Suddenly there's business. more and more people wanting to get into coal and gas yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's and, happening now? Well, what's happening now, really interestingly, is that the price of energy, and we're talking here about traditional energy, um, hydrocarbons, has crashed. Uh, the price Fossil of, fuels. Yeah. The, the price of coal has halved. Uh, really since January and probably the peak was back in September last year, but it's really come off since January. So it's now about half. At one stage, coal exports were more valuable than our iron ore exports. That's now, you know, over. Uh, gas prices have also come right back and gas prices and coal prices are aligned in many ways because they're used for the same thing, which is generating electricity. So, you know, as they come off the boil, um, the economics change changes again and you'll start to see, well, maybe it's not as profitable to develop all these new mines, but profitability might actually take a back seat to security. You've seen China commit a lot more uh, money and resources to coal-fired power stations and trying to you know, secure their own supplies of coal. So the economics and the geopolitical uh, element to this are tied up and it's going to really muddy the waters, I guess, and that's not going to be a great thing for uh, battling climate change. Ian, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. You're a font of knowledge. Great to have you on the party room. PK, Fran, great to be here. Thanks, Ian. We'll move to questions without notice. i give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Well, the bells are ringing. I think I'll take the call. It's question time here on the party room. And this week's question comes from Alec. Alec asks, PK, what will the ALP do to ensure that a voice to Parliament, if implemented, is able to assert influence over government decisions as an advisory body and not be ignored as a matter of expediency? Hmm, thinking ahead, Alec. Uh, Alec, uh, you've jumped a few hurdles there, the main one being a referendum being <laughs> successful, which is a very big hurdle. And then the second hurdle is legislating it, then the body and getting it elected. And so all of this will take a while. So your question is based on the premise that Labor is still in power then after all of that takes a while and it's all been a success, right, which are a few hypotheticals there, but let's accept that they're all right. Labor, I believe, if they're saying yes to a voice, and they certainly are, that's why they're putting the referendum up, has a huge responsibility to demonstrate that it's not just symbolism and a bit of fun, but that actually it matters that it leads to a closing of the gap or at least taking advice to try and get to that spot. And so they actually do have to demonstrate very much that they are listening and then I think part of the importance of that, if, if, if they are committed to it, is also setting up a template for what that advice looks like. Let's not forget that deliberately so, the referendum question will be simple. That's all to be worked out by the parliament. So actually, it's on Labor to show that it will have influence or they will be accused, especially from those that think it's you know not powerful, and that's some of the left, they will be accused of tokenism. Mm. Yeah, that's right. They are going to have to prove the bona fides here and get that entrenched. We've already heard uh, again and again the exasperation of people like Pat Anderson and others who have been involved in negotiations over these questions, Marcia Langton, many others, for decades. 
you know, they say we've talked and we've talked and we've talked and we get listened to but nothing happens. And so what they want the voice to be is something beyond that. It's to be something entrenched in our constitution that essentially directs parliaments, they hope, and governments to not just listen but to act on the advice and demands and calls from First Nations people. So, you know, I think you're right. The, really, the weights will be on Labor to make sure that this is something more than a token body, that it actually does have some influence. Thank you so much for sending your question. And, of course, we also take voice recordings. We love uh, the voice questions. Email the party room at abc.net.au or if uh, you want to send the voice, yes, you, you record it, you send it to that email address. Easy to do. Easy to do and easy to listen to us every week too. Follow the party room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. And for our listeners who are in Adelaide this weekend... Don't have to wait till next week to hear us again, do they? No, they don't, PK. We are bringing the party to the stage at Womadelaide on the weekend. So if you're Womadding or maybe just loafing around Adelaide after a fabulous Writers' Week and Adelaide Festival, come along on Sunday. The fun kicks off at 1.30. It's all part of the Planet Talk stage there at Womad. And we're going to be joined on Sunday by the Foreign Minister Penny Wong as well as Tory Shepherd from The Guardian. So if you're at Womad, come and watch. Yeah, please do. It'll be a lot of fun. It's such a great festival. Well, Fran, see you like very soon in Adelaide. (laughs) See you in Adelaide, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.